0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at HopeHullUMC.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We begin today with a number. And it's a very important number. It's very important that you remember this number. Ready? The number is 960. Got that? 960, 960. Now some of you may be wondering, what is the significance of that number? What does it have to do with the gospel of John? What does it have to do with changing water into wine? And some of you may have already figured it out. 960. For those who haven't quite figured it out, here it is. Don't forget If you were to take those six jars of water that Jesus transformed into wine, and if you were to take all of that wine and pour it into standard wine bottles, 750 milliliters, I looked it up, it would take about 960 bottles to hold it all. Almost a thousand bottles that's a lot of wine." 60 bottles. Now, you Thank might you. think that information is trivial and only useful if you're playing on a game show or trivial pursuit, but it's really A point of emphasis in John's gospel. And the point of emphasis is not just the fact that Jesus transformed water into wine. It's the fact that he transformed an abundant amount of water into an abundant amount of wine. And the point is emphasized in verses 6 and 7 in John's gospel. John's gospel in chapter 2. Standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Typically, a family would only have one of these stone water jars that holds 20 or 30 gallons of water. But this family had six. And John is highlighting the point that there's a lot more than you might have expected. Jesus tells the servants, take the jars, fill them with water. Now, we don't know if they were empty. We don't know if they were maybe halfway full. But whatever they were, Jesus took the jars and told the students, the servants to fill them up. And the servants, we're told, took it and filled it up to the brim, all the way to the top. So instead of having one jar, maybe partially full, we've got six. And even if they'd only been halfway full, you might have about 500 <laughs> bottles of wine. But Jesus tells the servants, fill them up, and John tells us they filled them all the way to the top. So these jars were at their maximum volume. It was all there. And John is highlighting not just the transformation, but the abundance of the volume of the the wine that Jesus produces. Almost a thousand bottles. That's a lot of wine. And that raises a question for us, doesn't it? Why? Why so much? Jewish weddings lasted a long time, multiple days, but even for a for a celebration that would have as many people and last as long as they typically did, this is an abundance of wine. Why so much? The answer comes when we realize that John is inviting us to reflect on this deep reality that is the bottom line in our reflection today, and it is this. Our need is no match for God's abundance. My need, your need, all our needs are no match for God's abundant provision revealed in Jesus. That's what John wants us to discover. Now, to understand the gravity of that, the significance of that, we need to be thinking about what a wedding in first century, uh, in the first century Jewish world would be like. Now, many of us have been to weddings, and typically it's a big deal. Uh, you've got an afternoon set aside, maybe a whole weekend for a rehearsal, and then people gather for a dinner, uh, and then the next day there's a lot of celebration, and everybody's focused on... happy couple and there's a church service and a reception afterwards and so you get kind of a couple of days of festivities maybe some other celebrations before that jewish weddings in the first century made that look like rather a small affair in the first century jewish world if there was a wedding it would last all week and not only would it last all week The entire village was invited. So everybody, not just the guest list, this was an open invitation. If you were getting married, you didn't publish a list, everybody just showed up. And people would come and people would go. Now in that setting, the groom is responsible for providing the wine. And you can imagine, it would take quite a lot of wine to make sure the entire village had enough not just for one reception a couple of hours one evening after the ceremony, but for the entire week. And if the wine ran out, the consequences of that, the detrimental consequences of that were very significant, almost unimaginable. It's not only a social embarrassment, it's a lack of family honor because a lot of times the way that the groom would provide for the wine would be by calling up his friends and other relatives, family members. Kinsmen are saying, hey, wedding's coming up. Can you help out? Can you donate some wine for the celebration? And if it runs out, it means that your network isn't what it's supposed to be. It means you don't have the kind of people around you that you can count on. The dishonor in the ancient world of those kinds of circumstances, those kinds of appearances are far more than we can even really begin to wrap our minds around. You might try to remember a moment where you felt ashamed, a moment where it was almost unbearable. This groom would have experienced that exponentially public dishonor public embarrassment and he couldn't fix the problem he was out he didn't have any more resources and he would soon discover what we need to discover his need was no match for God's provision in Jesus before he would discover that however we get that awkward moment. This is one of the more awkward moments in the Bible. Uh, Mary is there, though she's not called by name, she's the mother of Jesus. And she's the first one to notice that there's a problem, that they're out of wine. And so she turns to Jesus, confident in his ability to do something about the problem, and she says very simply, they have no wine. And you probably had moments where your mother uh, spoke to you And didn't say what she wanted you to do, but said what was going on. And you knew what she wanted you to do, because she described the situation with that tone of voice. They have no wine. And Jesus knew what she wanted him to to do, and yet he's hesitant, isn't he? It's almost awkward, and you might be thinking, man, if I spoke to my mama like that, there would be consequences. And what does he say? He says, woman... What concern is that to you and me? Like, What do I care? Why am I going to get involved in that? I've got things to do. I've got an agenda. My hour has not yet come. And he's talking about the hour of the revelation of his glory. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about all those things that are coming at the climax of the gospel narrative. The redemptive climax of the gospel. That's what he's describing when he says, that hour, the dawning of the new creation through his resurrection. He says, that hasn't come yet. What concern is this to me? This is an isolated incident in Galilee, and I've got a mission of cosmic proportions. Now, it may seem disrespectful, and you might be thinking, what is Jesus disrespecting his mama for? For that he calls her woman. But that is actually a term that's used all through the Gospel of John, and it doesn't ever appear to be a disrespectful term. But he's still hesitant, isn't he? He's not just, oh, yes, ma'am, let's, let's do it, let's take care of it. What is that to you and me? But Mary is his mama, and she has her mama trump card. She's going to get what she wants. So instead of giving Jesus further instruction, she turns to the servants and says, what may be for us one of the most crucial imperatives we'll ever hear, you do whatever he says. Imagine if she had spoken those words to us. This is Jesus. You do whatever he says. And they do. Jesus concedes and takes action. Tells the servants, go get the six jars, five more than you would normally have. Get the six jars, fill them up all the way. The servants take the jars, they fill them up. John tells us, we noticed a moment ago, but he tells us they fill them up to the brim. Like imagine 30 gallon barrels with water kind of spilling over the edge. He says, Take it, draw some out, take it to the master of ceremonies. They do that and discover that it is the best wine that has ever been tasted. And it is there. In abundance. It is the best. And it is more of the best than you've ever experienced in your life. And a lot of things begin to, to come into focus, don't they? Right? Mary says, do whatever He tells you. They do what He tells them. And all of a sudden, the, God's best is overflowing in their midst in abundant measure. And it invites, I mean, John is inviting us to reflect on this this relationship between the imperative and the abundance. Do what he says, and you get his best. Imagine, though, if they hadn't done what he said. Imagine if they just said, hey, we're out. What are we going to do? Serve water at a wedding? I mean, imagine what that would be like. Not only are we dishonored because we're out of wine, then we're going to start passing out little cups of water. How embarrassing is that? Not just for the groom, but for all of us who are associated with Him. But they do what Jesus said. If they hadn't, everyone's experience of God's best was conditioned on their obedient response. Now, that's not some kind of works righteousness thing. It's not what we're getting at. They don't get favor. They don't earn status with Jesus because they obey Him. But it does highlight the reality that we cannot run from Jesus and expect to get His best. We can't run from Him and expect to experience His best for our lives. We cannot disobey Jesus and expect full human beings full human life. We can't disobey Jesus and expect to flourish. Those servants learned that from experience, didn't they? And the bridegroom, the groom, would learn that as well. Now that why question is still there, though, isn't it? It's impressive that he Changed water into wine at all. But surely if it had only been one, two, three of those jugs, barrels, maybe that would have been enough. It's still a lot of wine. Why the emphasis on the volume, the abundance? It comes into focus for us when we Realize that all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, an abundance of wine is associated with God's end-time salvation. God tells his people through his prophets, yes, you are suffering. Yes, you are experiencing pain. Yes, you've had to go into exile. But the day will come when I will plant new vineyards and you will taste sweet wine the prophet amos says all through the old testament that promise of feasting that promise of a banquet with abundant wine from flourishing vineyards signifies the day when god would act decisively to rescue his people. When God would take their poverty, when God would take their lacking, when God would take their exile, their distance from Him, that lack of reconciled, loving, self-giving relationship, when He would take all of that and He would act to transform their life, their experience, their sorrow, their pain into wholeness and flourishing into His abundance. Jewish literature throughout this period was filled with material. That when God acted decisively, when God would send his Messiah, when he would send his Savior to rescue his people, it would be a time when God's best, symbolized by an abundance of wine, would characterize their life It would be a messianic banquet. It would be a celebration and a feast where resources and food and drink wouldn't be scarce, but they would be abundant and plenty. And no one, no one would go without. And John wants us to see, and he puts this story right at the front. He puts it right there so that we will know, so that we cannot Miss it that that day of redemption had come. God's abundance was coming to the place of His people's need. And it was coming in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who would throw a feast. Jesus is the true bridegroom who comes to rescue His bride and take her to Himself. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, who takes our scarcity and gives us plenty, who takes our need and meets it with his abundance. That's why there are six jars instead of one. That's why those jars get filled to the brim. That's why that number 960 is so important, because it highlights the absolute overwhelming abundance of the glory and grace of God that are present in Jesus. He is not indifferent to the need and the circumstances. He is not indifferent to our needs. And our needs are very much before us right now, aren't they? The needs of our community, the needs of the nation, the needs of the world. As people are panicking, as people are experiencing anxiety, as people are struggling, as people are suffering, as people are ill, as people are dying. Our need is very much in front of us. Jesus says, let me show you my abundance. That doesn't mean there will never be suffering. It means that God is at work in Jesus to do something new. That God has shown up in his world to heal. To rescue. We still live in waiting though, don't we? For that ultimate rescue. And in that season of waiting, it is imperative that we remember and that we commit ourselves in all that we are to this central reality. Our need is no match for his abundance. Our need is no match for Jesus' abundance. Abundance. This first sign helps us begin to understand what all of the signs mean. Helps us understand what Jesus is up to. And what makes him different from all of the other wannabe messiahs that came around from time to time. We're told that this is the first of Jesus' signs. And in doing this sign, right, and signs point to something else, the question is, what's it pointing to? John tells us, with this, the first of his signs, verse 11, he revealed his glory. And We might be thinking, well, what kind of glory is that? What's going on there? And if we remember chapter 1, verse 14, we're told, the Word became flesh. Jesus, God's creative Word, the power whereby He speaks and brings plants and planets into being. That Word, the let there be light Word. Has become flesh and lived among us and his name is Jesus and we have seen his glory the glory as of the father's only son full of grace and truth what glory does Jesus begin to reveal with this first sign it is the glory of his divine sonship he is The son of God. He is the father's only son. He is not just another Messiah. And the Jewish people had other messiahs. There were folks who came along and never said, Hey, God in the flesh over here, worship me or anything like that. They were delivering a message of freedom. They wanted to get people together and fight the bad guys and liberate the people. But this Messiah is different. This Jesus is not like all of the others. This Jesus reveals the heart, the reality, the identity of the Creator, God. And just as God spoke and brought everything into existence, Jesus speaks and acts and takes that created matter and transforms it into something new. And it begins to become clear. Eyes begin to open. This one is different. This one reveals something about the Creator. And the Creator's desire to meet our needs. And not just to meet them, but to meet them in abundance. It's important to remember this is the first sign. There are six more that will come along in John's gospel. The seventh one is the raising of Lazarus. And there Jesus says that all this is happening so that you can see the glory of God revealed in Jesus. And so the first sign and the seventh sign, there's this idea of glory being revealed. And That bookend, one on each end, helps us understand what all of them mean. All of the signs are about the revelation of God's power at work in Jesus, but it's still just the first sign. This thing is going somewhere. There is a a trajectory. And as we move through the signs, we are moving towards a crucial moment, and Jesus calls that moment his hour. Again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the moment to which the whole story is driving his hour. And his hour will be the hour where he wins the decisive victory to meet our needs, our ultimate needs, our eternal needs. That hour would come And Jesus would stretch his arms to embrace it. And in embracing it, he would suffer. And take upon himself the weight of our spiritual poverty. Of our spiritual brokenness of our rebellion. And his body would be bruised and his flesh would be torn and his face and brow would be pierced by thorns while his hands and feet were pierced by nails. That's his hour. and it's his glory and it would give way to a moment in a garden when he stepped out of the tomb as the first act of God's new creation the creator's word has been made flesh and is making all things new from the inside out. And this first sign, water turned into wine, An old, a part of the old creation brought into the new creation, draws our hopes and dreams and longings together and says, The Creator, desires to meet your need and your need is no match for his abundance how do we respond to that the answer comes in verse 11 doesn't it Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. They believed in him. They trusted him. They threw their law in with him. Him. They committed themselves to Him. Later on, towards the end of the Gospel, John will say, I've written all these things down. The signs, the wonders, the deeds of Jesus. And honestly, there's more than will fit in the book. All the books of the world. And the whole point For me, writing these things down is so that you will see Jesus and believe in Him. Trust Him. From the beginning of the Gospel to the end, the purposes are captured in this sentence. The disciples believed in Him. Belief in Jesus Trust in Him. Not just kind of a mental checklist of the right doctrines, but this wholehearted confidence in Jesus. That His abundance overwhelms and meets all of our needs. We don't have what we need to meet our needs. Like that groom didn't have the wine to feed and his guests to offer them a drink. Jesus comes to us with his abundance and says, Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. The disciples did. Now it's our turn. In a moment and in a world where our needs are ever before us and magnified before us, where our frailty is brought to our memories, moment by moment, we are invited to trust Jesus. You've been listening to SermonCast